it's Sarah. Remember to tune into The Last Dance, which continues this Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN. And listen to the wrap-up podcast hosted by Jalen and Jacoby immediately following the broadcast, which is brought to you by State Farm. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Coverage is also brought to you by AT&T. You can find Jalen and Jacoby wherever you get your podcasts. At AutoZone, they're all about giving you more choices to help you get what you need and get it fast. If you need something for a job that has to get done today, just order on AutoZone.com and choose free same-day pickup. You can pick your order up in-store at more than 5,700 locations nationwide. Or if you prefer, you can have it brought out to you with their curbside option. Your choice. AutoZone also offers next-day delivery. Just order what you need on AutoZone.com by 10 p.m., and they'll bring it to your front door the next day. It's great for those jobs that can wait until tomorrow. That's how AutoZone helps you get your job done easier. Restrictions and details at AutoZone.com. Get in the zone. AutoZone. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I am Jenny O'Dell, and my dilemma is that because I wrote a book called How to Do Nothing, people think that I have tons of time. So I thought for sure this was going to be about people spelling your name wrong, because I heard O'Dell and immediately put an apostrophe in there, O'Dell. And after having to say Spain like the country every damn day of my life, I figured you must have some sort of Odell no apostrophe routine as well. But I digress. That is not your dilemma. Your dilemma reminds me of last week's South Bitch sessions. It was all about assuming that my quarantine is just like everyone else's and that I have time for sourdough and TikTok and talking to your class and writing you back about your idea and everything else. So I can't even imagine what it's like for someone who's literally got a book that says how to do nothing. I've got to say, I'd suggest maybe a signature line in your emails that says, doing nothing takes time or something like that. A gentle reminder that you're being intentional with how you spend your day and that they should respect that. I would like to say that will work. Of course, you know, people are the worst. So no guarantees there. The commission has spoken. Jenny O'Dell is an American artist, writer and educator who wrote the book, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. It's sort of the opposite of a pod from a couple weeks ago with Chris Gillibo talking side hustles and how to turn this quarantine into a life-changing pivot point toward a new career or a new money-making venture. Instead, this is a conversation about using this major moment in history to consider things differently. The people and places around you, the things you value and think you need, the habits that you've acquired and whether you still need them. Something that Jenny wrote ahead of this pandemic sort of illuminates perfectly this thoughtful and optimistic approach to the times that we're in. Quote, I think most of us have or know someone who has gone through some period of removal that fundamentally changed their attitude to the world they returned to. Sometimes that's occasioned by something terrible like illness or loss, and sometimes it's voluntary. But regardless, that pause in time is sometimes the only thing that can precipitate change on a certain scale. So we talk about that, and we talk about uh, how to open your mind to conceptual art is not a stunt, but something that can materially change how you see things and what you see. Also, how artists are sort of architects of attention, directing people what to see and how to see it and how you can either adapt to that 
be aware of it or choose choose not to have it affect you. How what's happening around us can tell us how our world is reacting to our behaviors changing and what things we can actually continue post-pandemic that will serve us and the world. And also how to figure out whether you're someone who actually needs structure or stillness during this. How doing nothing doesn't mean literally nothing but changing your awareness. There's a little bit of like a rattle shake in some of the conversation. You'll get used to it. It's very slight. Uh, in fact, if I haven't mentioned it, you might not notice it, but want to throw it out there. Uh, it's especially just at the beginning. Hope you guys enjoy this. I think it's a really thoughtful conversation. That's what she said. So I wanted to have Jenny O'Dell on the podcast anyway, uh, because she had come recommended from somebody else that had previously been on who had spent a lot of time trying to figure out how do we digitally detox and make sure that we use our phones as tools instead of companions and don't become uh, owned by them. And it uh, serendipitously seems like a very good time to talk to someone who has figured out how to do nothing. Uh, how to not force yourself into productivity at all times, but not maybe in the ways that you imagine when you hear that that word do nothing. So Jenny, thanks so much for making some time to chat with me. Thanks for having me. Uh, I was doing a lot of research for this. And in the medium story that you wrote, that was sort of a precursor or a companion to your book, How to Do Nothing, you wrote, I think most of us have or know someone who has gone through some period of removal that fundamentally changed their attitude to the world they returned to. Sometimes that's occasioned by something terrible like illness or loss, and sometimes it's voluntary. But regardless, that pause in time is sometimes the only thing that can precipitate change on a certain scale. It was so perfect for this current moment that we're in. And it's something that I want to get to in terms of how you might be looking at what you've written and spent your time on in recent years even more clearly or even differently now because we're stuck at home. Uh, but before we do that, I think we should establish who you are and how you became a person that writes about, um, quote unquote, doing nothing. Although, of course, there's there's a lot more depth to it than just staring at a wall. Uh, let's talk about your childhood. What kind of kid were you growing up in in California? I was a very lucky kid in that I was, you know, like I've always been curious um, and sort of enjoyed getting into various wormholes um, and just paying a lot of attention to one thing. Um, and so I'm lucky in that my parents really encouraged me in that. And that I also, because I grew up in the Bay Area, it meant that, you know, being outdoors was something that was, you know, pretty easy to do. And even like teachers were very accommodating of my weird interests. And it's something that I think about a lot now, now that I'm a teacher where, you know, like kids are just, I think, curious by nature. And there's like this kind of formative moment in which like that is or is not encouraged. Right. Um, and so that's, that's definitely was a big part of my childhood. I also, I'm an only child and would spend a lot of time sort of like alone making some weird, like incredibly detailed thing, like, <laughs> which I guess isn't surprising anymore, you know, like a map of some imaginary landscape or yeah. some like really, really long story, like, you know, 15 single spaced pages in Microsoft Word kind of like just really like very detailed. Um, so that's, and I, I wrote a lot. I have journals going back to when I was like seven. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I love how the way you talked about it actually just put a vision in my head of of sometimes mistaking a kid who is very singularly focused on something as a daydreamer who has no focus. Because right. a lot of what you might have been doing and what some kids are doing is actually 
delivering all their attention to something. But if everybody else isn't interested in it, then they're like, okay, they're not paying attention to the thing we're all doing. So they must be unfocused. They must be a daydreamer when in fact, they just have decided to focus on something else, which can be really difficult, I'm sure, for parents and teachers. But um, the fact that that was fostered in you maybe led to a lot of your ability to see things differently than the rest of us. Yeah. And I I think like, you know, I, I even have memories of specific elementary school teachers, you know, like letting me design parts of my own curriculum, which is just crazy, right? Like, I mean, I think, like you said, there's this kind of issue with, um, like, the more and more standardized things are, and the more there's this kind of one-size-fits-all approach to um, teaching classes or testing, things like that, that has, like, a very antagonistic relationship to, like, the natural interests of kids and students. And I think, you know, we, like I said, we all kind of start off with curiosity and this ability to get absorbed in things. And it's just a question of whether or not that is, you know, enlarged and encouraged. So you are growing up and exploring writing and projects and uh, doing your thing. And you end up going to Berkeley and you study English literature. And uh, was that with a desire to continue writing or what, what made you decide to study the thing was it about a job and what you wanted to do with yourself or just pursuing something you were interested in? Uh, it was very much not uh, thinking about a job. <laughs> so, um, although, you know, in retrospect, I think that actually an, a degree in English is incredibly useful for all kinds of jobs. But, you know, uh, at that time, I was really just like following the thing that I felt intuitively interested in. And it wasn't actually so much about writing. It was more... Um, you know, a lot of English classes are about analysis, like literary analysis. And that was the part that I really enjoyed. So I really liked reading a book with, you know, other students in small group settings and really like fine tooth comb, like going through the text and, you know, having a hunch about, you know, something that's kind of like between the lines and like seeing if that gets borne out. Um, you know, that's something that I carried over even into like art making and things that are outside of writing is this kind of like, again, like close attention, making your way slowly through something and kind of like collecting bits and pieces of evidence to see if, you know, something that you've noticed is actually uh, an identifiable thread. And I'm also really lucky that the English department at Berkeley is amazing, uh, like super rigorous without being, you know, like cutthroat or competitive. Yeah. <laughs> like really supportive. Like everyone was just working really hard and invested and yeah, I mean, I even stayed in touch with my my thesis advisor, <laughs> who is in my book. I quoted him in the book. Yeah, so that's that was kind of the thinking behind that. It's interesting because I was an English major, and this just keeps coming up in recent times, the, the usefulness of being able to have an idea or thesis about something and then try to figure out how to prove it out. And it's useful as a sports reporter who's having debates with people. It's useful as a lawyer. It's useful in so many capacities to want to understand something clearly enough to then have an opinion about it and reinforce that. Um, it becomes something that you use all over the place, even if at the time you're, you're focusing it specifically on, on whatever you're reading. So you end up going to the San Francisco Art Institute to get your MFA. Uh, what was, uh, what was behind the pivot into design and technology and, and art? Well, I, so as a kid, I had been always doing both, uh, art and writing and often like trying to combine them in some way. And so while I was at Berkeley, I was taking art classes. I just wasn't, you know, I didn't minor in it or anything like that. I was just taking them on the side. And I, I, it's kind of funny to think about now. I had this idea that 
and this is of course when everyone like everyone wanted to be a graphic designer right i thought that that maybe graphic design would let me combine art and writing and get me a job that i think that was my logic <laughs> which of course is like it just it, yeah it very much did not work out that way but <laughs> the summer before i graduated from undergrad i took a design like summer course at parsons in new york just to kind of see you know how i liked it and i thought it was really interesting so based on that i applied to grad school i i applied to design programs and the one that i got into at the san francisco art institute is extremely conceptual <laughs> um and it's like the opposite of what you would think of with like cut and dried uh utilitarian sort of graphic design but i think by the time i realized that it was kind of too late yeah um and so i got very much like a different experience from what i initially was expecting in retrospect i think it was more much more valuable um but that that it feels like it was a little bit accidental yeah, for sure. So you move into creating art for a number of different places and, you know, everything from using stock images from Google Earth and Google Maps to create different landscapes. Um, you've, you've been a teacher, you've been an artist in re- residence. And, um, one of the things that comes up repeatedly in the interviews that I hear and, and the work that you've done is talking about how you often don't create something new, but rather just create a new way of looking at it. And one example of that is the work that you did with the items and 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 someone went to the exhibit and said so did you make anything or just put stuff on shelves and you were like well nope i actually did just put stuff on shelves but i very intricately researched these products these items from our past and where they came from and why they were made and what whether they're in use now and so can you explain that a little bit and and how it sort of maybe reflects a larger opinion of yours on what art can be beyond just creation yeah, um, I think I'm just really drawn to an understanding of art that's different from art as a product. So, you know, I, I love painting and sculpture and things that, you know, you would want to go and have a physical encounter with that have some sort of aura about them or that you would, you know, even if you are wealthy enough, like buy and put in your home. But I think that I, when you think about like art as a product, there's this other kind of art where the outcome is a new way of looking at things or just kind of attention to something new. And that I think is as much a thing as what we would traditionally consider like an artwork. Um, so if I go and have an experience of a piece of art that permanently changes the way I hear sound or see color, which, you know, that has happened to me, that's something that I then carry with me for the rest of my life. And mm-hmm. I kind of can't think of anything more generous or generative than that. And I think also it comes from my sensibility, which is that I feel very comfortable uh, or it feels like instinctual to me to kind of like go through the world and document like little things, like document attributes of a space or learn the history of something like that. And that's just kind of my natural state. Um, So it just ends up being that the thing that I produce is often like a guide or a map or a framework that will help the viewer find the things that I found. And that I, I also feel like it's a little bit like I feel comfortable with that in, in terms of ego too. Like I'm not really there. Like I'm not really there dictating the experience that you're having. It's almost like I, I set up a space for you and you move through it in the way that feels appropriate. Yeah. 
we're now documenting the car horn that's outside of yeah. your, your um, house, which is I'm sure will go away, but we'll acknowledge it instead of uh, pretending it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, I can still hear you fine. So one of the examples that you've written about that is a perfect, I think, summation of that because it's so simple, but so obvious is, is the work that someone created for the sunset. And it's just a couple like red velvet ropes, uh, a, a couple chairs and treating the idea of sitting down to a sunset, naming it applause encouraged and having people sit in chairs and stare and watch the sun go down and then clap for it. <laughs> and when you tell someone something is quote unquote art or an experience or something to be paid attention to, it changes their experience of it in really powerful ways. And that's a really simple one, but it seems like it's really stood out to you. Yeah. Um, I think that some of the most appealing examples of this to me are the simplest ones. So yeah, there's applause and courage. There's uh, the James Terrell uh, rooms in which you can sit and look through this square hole in the ceiling and just watch clouds going by. Um, and then of course there's the John Cage piece 433 that I mentioned where the musician plays nothing um, for a certain yeah. period of time. And then the actual piece is the ambient sounds in the room. And I think, you know, it's so easy to write these off as, you know, conceptual art stunts or, you know, like, again, saying that the artist didn't do anything. But I, I think that not only is it a really accessible form of art, it really does, like I said, it, it can materially change things that you do or do not see. I frequently give my students uh, this assignment to like, choose a, a place, and just kind of sit and observe and write down everything that happens for 15 minutes just asking someone to do that is going to change uh, what they notice. And mm -hmm. I've been thinking about this a lot recently now that we're, you know, on lockdown. Um, I have lived on this street for four years. And this morning I was sitting on the balcony and I, I've been looking at my street a lot more than I'm used to. And it just occurred to me to like look up the years that the buildings across the street were built. And it turns out they were built in like, you know, 19... 1910 or something like that. Nice. It's just not what you would expect. Yeah. Um, and it just completely like changed my understanding of my entire street. And then seeing, you know, like the different dates and understanding that like, Oh, when this house was built, like this one wasn't, wouldn't have been here yet. So maybe it was right. empty, you know? So uh, why because, is it shaped like that? And why is it sitting flush to it or far away from the one next to it or reminiscent? Or is it even paying homage via the architecture to the one next to it? Right, right, right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And it's, but it's, you know, you have to sort of give yourself or be given the opportunity to, to have enough time and space to notice anything other than what you're kind of used to. Well, and that's the biggest thing right now. And it's something that I, I'm not sure how old you are, but those of us that grew up without cell phones and grew up with the internet being something that you slowly used as a tool or slowly got into. We remember what it was like to be bored, to sit, right? I remember I did track in college. So we would be on these long bus trips and I would have a journal and I would stare out the window and I would watch the world go by and I would think about it. And I would write in my journal and I would listen to music and I would think about that. And we don't allow ourselves the opportunity to be bored anymore um, because there is constantly something available that will fill us with endless information and opinions and takes and and constant streams of things that will prevent us from sitting in our own thoughts. And I was reading this uh, Glennon Doyle book, Untamed, that's out now, and I don't have kids. I've thought a lot about how technology affects kids, especially those that have never been without it. But one of the things she wrote about that, that happened to hit right now while we're all sitting at home 
is that she wrote that we're raising a generation of writers who will never start writing, artists who will never start doodling, chefs who will never make a mess of the kitchen, athletes who will never kick a ball against a wall, musicians who will never pick up their aunt's guitar and start strumming. Because we are just filling them with activities and things and phones. And they never just decide to adapt to the, the, the space around them by trying something new or dedicating time to something without a break and without, you know, pausing to check their text first or see whatever everybody else thinks about that thing they're doing. And I think that speaks a lot to what you were writing about even before this moment of stillness is, um, how do we make sure that we aren't constantly being told how to think and use our time? Yeah, I know it's, it's really hard. And I, I am, you know, I'm in my thirties, so I, I do remember what it felt like to be bored AI before internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, cause I have all those journals. I, I was looking at some recently and I forgot that, um, my senior year of high school, I actually used to cut class a lot, apparently. And <laughs> I would go to the park and I would just look at ducks. Huh. And I have like several entries about ducks where I'm just like, you know, I really like ducks and I think I would like to come back as a duck into my future life because <laughs> they just seem really chill. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, I think, you know, one thing because I've taught college students now for a while and because I teach digital art, I, you know, I sometimes I feel like it's necessary to just point out that the ways that they have of using this technology um, are very creative a lot of the times. Um, and, you know, it's not all sort of like vapid screen time, but I do, I do get concerned about their time. Like the, like whether um, there is any time that feels unstructured for them. And then even if that does come up, you know, there's this risk that the idea that time is money has been so deeply ingrained in your mind that being given open time doesn't even feel that way, right? Like it already needs to translate into something or something useful, mm. something kind of uh, with immediate tangible results. Um, and so it's something that I find myself kind of trying, it's like a mindset I'm trying to encourage in my class that has come from my own personal experience, even as an adult um, who's as plugged into all of these things as the next person I've had enough experience that I can look back and see that oftentimes right before I made something big that was meaningful to me, like the book or the the dump residency, um, there was often a really long period of time. Which that, is an art, uh, a uh, place that you made art, the dump residency. Oh, yeah, the dump. Yeah. I, I might not understand the uh, terms. That was a place where I believe you had to make art out of things you found in a in a landfill. Uh, and it, yeah, it was a transfer station, so it was on its yeah. way to the landfill. But yeah, before each of these kind of significant projects, there was a period of time, and like I, I have the journal entries to prove it, that I was really concerned that I wasn't accomplishing anything. Mm. Uh, and so, and at the same time, I often was, I would be confused about, you know, like what I thought about different things. You know, I would feel sort of lost, like I was just, you know, not not um, covering any ground. Um, because I didn't have anything to show for that time. And in retrospect, it's very easy to look back and see that that was actually a very generative time. And I, I want to be careful to like not make it seem like off time is actually on time, you know, or like that, that right. off time is like productive in some way. I just mean that, um, in the creative process, especially that this kind of narrow idea of making and producing and being productive, it just doesn't encompass the reality of how things get made or how we come to conclusions or reflect or think about anything. 
And so that's something that I actually have found like my students have been really receptive to. And I think that there are so many different ways you can use technology and there are ways that you can use it to actually um, give you that space. One of the things that you've written is that by doing nothing or what you've tried to get across in your writing is doing nothing doesn't mean sitting and staring. It means take time out to engage in something without considering first whether it's productive. It may end up being productive to it, which is what you just spoke to, uh, because you also wrote, um, ironically, I believe that having recourse to periods of and spaces for doing nothing are even more important because those are times and places that we think, reflect, heal, and sustain ourselves. It's a kind of nothing that's necessary for, at the end of the day, doing something. And that's something I think is very lost now because we feel the need to use our time to create or do, even if it's something like I have trouble relaxing. So at least if I cleaned or I I did something like that, I can say, this is how I spent my time. I have a lot of trouble just sitting. And because we're always looking for that, we don't let our minds wander. We don't have deep thoughts about things that might be plaguing us. And then we don't reconcile them or move forward based on that, that time spent thinking or diving deep. You mentioned when you were a kid, you got into a lot of wormholes. It feels like a lot of your work now also involves <laughs> just getting like you're, you just start something and then you're like, okay, now I'm going to really dive deep into this until I'm going back decades and centuries and, and every possible, you know, tentacle of this is explored. We don't do that a lot because we don't allow ourselves the time to do it. And even though that's not necessarily doing nothing, that's the research or the work, you don't even think about that thing because you never allow yourself a break for, for your mind to, to ask that question. Oh, when, when were these buildings built or why were these objects made or any number of things that don't come to mind if we're constantly just zipping from one thing to the next? Yeah, totally. And I, um, I think, you know, it'd be easy to sort of assume that the, the do nothing mindset is something that's unstructured, but I think that actually, you know, similar to those art pieces that I mentioned where the artist creates a framework for the viewer to kind of sit in and have a period of time and space. Um, I think you can do that for yourself. So, I mean, this is an odd example, but my balcony only gets sunlight between 9.30 and 10.15 in the morning. <laughs> so <laughs> I have to wake up by that time. Um, and I have to be sitting on, I'm just, I'm very obsessed with sitting in the sun. And I've been really sad that I can't do that as much as I normally would. And so it's kind of like I have this appointment with this spot. And then I sit there and I don't live on a busy street, but you know, there's things going on. Um, there's like a fair number of birds. There's, you know, people coming and going, there's like the neighborhood cat. Um, and just like having this sort of 45 minutes where, you know, it's not always 45 minutes, but close to 45 minutes of just sitting and just noting everything that's happening on the street. Um, I have found that extremely therapeutic I think always but especially right now yeah um, because th there's something especially crazy to me about the idea that that you could just keep working right now as if everything is normal like <laughs> you know what I mean like I, I understand like I have the privilege to be working from home and to be you know like living where I live and and so many things but like beating yourself up for not being productive assumes that like what's going on is somehow not going on. Um, and so I, I worry about the sort of capacity for just like sitting with emotions or just, just kind of watching a situation without needing to have an analysis or an explanation 
or take on it. I think that's like really important right now and, and also kind of hard to find space for. Yeah, it's it's funny because Gia Tolentino was on this podcast and she writes a lot about the internet and this idea of do we know who we are or do we know what the algorithms think we are? And then does that just continue to affect our movement movements and interactions on the internet? And she was wrote wrote about TikTok as an example. If they give you this many videos of cats and dogs, and then you like the cat ones more, then they'll give you more cats. But eventually are you are you seeing what you wanted or what they wanted you to want and can you tell the difference anymore and the same goes with takes and opinions are you realizing by reading everybody else's opinions what yours is or are you just internalizing other people's thoughts and then adopting them as your own because you haven't been given the space to actually think about it yourself you've just digested other people's thoughts because there's never any loss of content or or opinion and when you're trying to look at productivity versus say something like the attention economy, which is something that you talk about as well. I'm curious whether you think the internet, I know that quote unquote attention economy is a fairly new concept, but it's always been there. Humans have always had X amount of hours per day that they're awake, but it's completely different now that there is an actual industry that is attempting to monetize and economize our attention. And like a book will, will rope you in, but the book even if it's written with some some twists and turns that keep you wanting to turn the page, it's not monetized then with advertisements between the big moments the way that, say, the Internet is, right? And so there's people mm-hmm. whose job is to keep us on Facebook for as long as possible or somewhere else for as long as possible. Um, I, I'm trying to get to a question here, but I guess I'm just curious, like, when you when you talk about art and and or even staying still as a way of being an architect of attention how you can change people from feeling like they're being demanded and instead that they're choosing where they put their attention um is that sort of where you got from the art that you were creating to the book about about how to do nothing or how to choose your attention yeah i think so i mean um a lot of the pieces that i mentioned in the book that i have enjoyed do that right like they take your attention uh or they help you move your attention willfully or they cultivate different kinds of attention different scales of attention and they're also just kind of like reminders that there's always something else in front of you it's just that you're not looking for it and it's like it's really crazy for me to even just think about like you know the different people walking down my street and like what they're seeing uh, like what kinds of things they notice, what kinds of things they take for granted, like every, every person is going to be different. Um, and there's something really magical about like learning that you can, uh, with help from art or, you know, other, other sources, like you can sort of make this decision to seek out new patterns, um, or start new, noticing new patterns. And I, I feel like that's very helpful in dealing with the attention economy because it's, it reminds you that you have that choice. I don't want to sort of like sort of underestimate like the the power of the attention economy and the amount of effort that goes into engineering situations that can be very hard for someone to get out of attention wise. Um, But I do think that there are these um, these like little shifts that are interesting to me. Like uh, for example, I am morbidly fascinated with internet ads. (laughs) So, you know, like sometimes I'll be on Instagram and an Instagram ad will come up and I'll actually just like really sit and look at it. Like I will just examine it. Like what font are they using? Like what assumptions is this ad making about me? Why am I being served this ad? 
uh, you know, what kind of traditions of advertising does this sit in? Right. And already that kind of like, you know, it sucks that I have to look at that, but at least I'm not sort of like passively consuming the ad in the way that I was supposed to. And I, I have a little bit more of a center of gravity and I am a little bit more aware of what I'm looking at. And I think that it takes a lot of kind of stamina to maintain that, but it is like a small example of these just like little shifts or removals that you can make in the middle of engaging with something where you kind of step back a little bit and just kind of just look at it instead of reacting to it or just consuming it passively. Yeah. And I love that because you're not asking people to step away from the technology that keeps them connected or allows them to do their work or that they take their classes through, but you're instead asking them to choose how to interact with it instead of being told how to. And that sort of stepping outside of your own brain to say, what is this supposed to be telling me? Why is it here? Is another really thoughtful way of approaching everything in life, right? When you read a study, you say, who paid for this study? Who would want this information to be out? When, when I find out that drinking wine every day is actually good for me, who paid for the study? Why are they paying this? Can I get the things that are in wine somewhere else? And is it really the best way to, you know? And I think a lot of times, especially in the digital age, there's a, such a need for understanding how to receive everything that comes your way, whether that's people who are Twitter sending me tweets right now that say COVID-19 vaccine, click here to find out how to get it. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, listen, I'm, I'm well-versed enough to know that this is fake report, spam, block, move on. But then you've got a grandma somewhere that's literally taking a drug that she heard might help and her husband dies and she's d- deathly ill because she didn't have the literacy either for, you know, what was being said by certain people or what she was reading or what she saw on the internet to know how to vet it and understand it well. And I think that's so important now. So the idea that you would say, I see this ad, I know why I got it because I just mentioned to my friend that I like ice cream and now I'm getting an ad for ice cream and what's the color they're using and why are they trying to get me to buy it? And it's just an awareness that's so different than being a a cog in, in the machine instead of grinding it to a halt and stopping and looking at it differently. Um, Does it slow you down ever though in moments when you don't want it to? Because I imagine that attention to detail and that desire to not be caught up in things and be told how to digest them might occasionally be frustrating. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I'm just used to it at this point in my life because I've always been this way. But I mean, like a classic example is uh, because I teach at Stanford, the Stanford campus has so many birds and I, you know, really into bird watching. So I sometimes call myself an involuntary bird watcher because I'm not trying to. And, um, and so, you know, I'll be walking to my class and I might even be a little late. Um, and I'm like carrying all these bags and stuff and I will hear or see some bird. You know, it's not the first time I've ever seen it. It's just, you know, some particular bird and it's like time just goes away, like time and space go away. And I'm just like, in this like other universe. (laughs) Um, And then I'm like late to class. Um, And like, I have like many versions of that where, you know, like little things are interesting to me and I like want to go down that path. And that's great. If like you have left yourself the space to do that, or it is, it is the time and space to do that, but it can make like, just kind of 
trying to execute some task that you just have to do right. like really difficult everyday life right at least you have a built-in excuse for your students you're like oh sorry guys i was really practicing what i preach and that's why I'm yeah. <laughs> um you know you mentioned the birds and you 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 talk a lot about birds you write about birds the birds are very connected uh to you obviously but um while someone might look at that and say that's either quote unquote a waste of time or an okay use of time, but not productive. One of the things that you mentioned is how the ways that we interact with the world around us and physically stand in the spaces that we're in remind us of who we are and allow us not to get lost either in the internet versions or the avatars of ourselves, but also to look at how we're living and whether we want to live that way. And that's a through line I've seen from a lot of people during this shutdown. What does it mean to look at the world and say, is this better that there's fewer flights and there's less refuse and there's less movement and people are still what is this what is this telling us about how we want to look at the world when we're out of this and change it to better reflect to stop some of the practices we've gotten stuck in that are actually bad for us and you mentioned the birds you said when you start paying attention to a population of a certain type of bird in your neighborhood you will notice when it's gone one year and there's a difference between that and reading about climate change they're both important but i think if you begin to recognize things that live around you as agents in their own right for me, they almost seem like people, then the effects on them will be felt in a different way and it does feel real. And that's so fascinating because it is true, this large concept of climate change is overwhelming and terrifying. But to be reminded of it, because the everyday thing that you listened to or watched is gone because of the effects on it. And birds are one of the things that have been most affected by climate change. We're losing species rapidly. Um, and, and I think that little germ of an idea that's very specific to birds could be extrapolated upon a thousandfold in our current time of what we're now noticing about the spaces around us because of the way our behaviors have changed. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if, uh, you know, how true this is in other places, but, uh, you know, I live in Oakland and kind of one of the only places that can walk that's not crowded is up the hill. Um, and so I, I, I've never seen it so clear here before. I think most people I know have not ever seen it this clear. Um, I mean, I can see individual buildings in San Francisco, <laughs> which is like really strange. And it, that's just kind of like a visual sort of metaphorical example for like this realization that other things are possible, um, okay. that like this can look a different way. And I think, you know, I, it's so hard to know like what things are going to look like after this, but I do think that there is, you know, at least an opportunity for us to think about things that we normally take for granted and things that we have been told just have to be that way that very almost overnight we see, you know, like uh pausing evictions <laughs> or just like this idea of like um, that this idea that people might need help, right? Like it's uh, ideas of like fairness, people kind of becoming more aware of their privileges, seeing like who's still at work and like who's doing what I think, you know, the situation overall is obviously terrifying, but I, I do think that there is like this opportunity to think about, um, to just take a different perspective on what felt what felt like to be every day and it's going to look very different. Yeah, which brings us back to that original quote that I started with, the idea of a removal, whether that was from illness or loss or voluntary choice, that might be the only thing to precipitate a larger change. And we've all been removed from our everyday lives, removed from society, removed from each other. And as scary and awful as it is, and as many 
problems and issues that will result from that economically, financially, socially, otherwise, health-wise, um, there are also opportunities to look for the benefits and the things that come out of it that we want to replicate in our lives once we do return to everyday and and make those those lasting changes. And you've mentioned it a couple times. So much of this is based on privilege, um, whether that's the privilege of stillness, the privilege of wasting or not wasting time. That's not the right word. The privilege of spending time letting your or mind having or time or having time. <laughs> right. And so, of course, there are people listening to this who will say I'm in a position right now to do any of this. But um, those who can, I think, would benefit a lot from it. It's interesting because it's I think we've seen people battling about it's okay to stay in bed all day and not feel like you have to do stuff. And then other people saying, don't stay in bed all day. Try to make sure you still have a regular life so that your mental health doesn't suffer if you're someone who doesn't get served by that stillness. And so I think it's so much a personal choice in terms of how we react to these changes. And at some point, it's not about creating productivity, but it is about figuring out what serves you in these moments because we're all very different. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it just has to do with like, honestly, right now, like keeping afloat and whatever it is, I I think it's even important to step away from all of that kind of advice and just like, listen to yourself. Yeah. Um, and just, you know, um, it's a little bit cheesy, but I have started to think about like bird watching and self observation is similar because when you, you sit in a space and you kind of wait for birds to come and go, um, you have no control over that, but you can be more familiar and it can sort of make more sense to you. I think in a similar way, you can watch yourself, uh, like watch your own thoughts and feelings and reactions um, instead of being totally subsumed by them. And I'm not saying anything new. This is like therapy 101, right? Like I have a therapist. <laughs> Anyone who has a therapist has probably heard this, right? But, but I think that whatever, I think just that that doing that in the first place requires that step of removal of stepping away, even if just mentally stepping away and just shutting down the sort of analytical reactive, like I need to find a solution right now, part of your brain and just having that be quiet enough that you can just watch for some amount of time. Okay. Like what's actually here? Uh, what's around me? What's going on in my head? And this is very similar to the idea of deep listening that I talk about in the book as articulated by the composer Pauline Oliveros, which is this like idea of listening inward and outward at the same time. Mm. And I think that if you do that, there is a good chance that you will at some point maybe draw closer to whatever it is that you need yeah. in this time, you know, um, and that might be being very industrious. Maybe that structure is what lets some part of your brain relax. Maybe it's, Maybe it's sort of being a couch potato. I don't know. Like it's everyone is going to be different. Um, but I think that kind of going with your intuition on that is probably important. Yeah. Uh, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does, but nobody expects. I didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Question one. What's your Desert Island album? You could only have one. Oh, um, that would be Deep Listening by Pauline Oliveros. There you go. How, how perfectly on brand. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Um, curiosity. Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Like in life? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
mm, not staying in touch with friends as much as I would like to so far in my life. Yeah. Are you able to do that now at all? Yeah, I think in a weird way, I maybe am more. <laughs> yeah, I feel like Zoom is like I'm having a dinner party with someone who doesn't live in the same state. And I'm like, I wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be talking to you face to face if not for all this. Yeah, yeah, it's, totally. It's been very connective, oddly. It's a very isolating time when we're all actually doing the same thing. We feel isolated, but we're all doing the exact same thing, which is really rare. Uh, for right. And it, it's so meaningful to just like talk to someone else yeah. who's also experiencing it. Yeah. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? No, <laughs> you don't strike me as, as someone. <laughs> uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for one day, who would it be? Living? Doesn't matter. Oh, wow. Ah, man, that's hard. So switch lives with someone. Um, maybe this is a weird answer. David Sibley, who wrote the Sibley Sibley West, like the bird guide that's okay. kind of standard because he wrote and illustrated it. And I just like, don't like, I don't even know how that's possible. <laughs> it's just so like, <laughs> it's so detailed. And it's like, I don't know. And I, I would assume he spends a lot of time observing birds, maybe in like special situations. <laughs> yeah. And so you would get to have uh, those moments. I like that. Yeah. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Um, the most embarrassed I've ever been was when five of my friends from high school, elementary school and high school came to my MFA show and they said hi at the end of the night. And I was very tired and I'd seen a bunch of people and I completely forgot all of their names. <gasps> wow. <laughs> yeah. That's really, that's full on tired. That's like your mind's been focused on this piece of art that you're about to show for so long that your brain is like put everything else to the side. It, yeah. I mean, in my defense, like it was like a two hour, like huge, exhibition so like people from all different periods of my life came <laughs> and like so it was just like context like all over the place yeah like, people I worked with at like the amusement park drawing caricatures wow. and like people from the coffee shop that I had worked you know what I mean and so I was like by it's, the end I was just like yeah. I know who you are I just cannot access your names in my it's, brain right now it's really tiring to be so popular I get it you know everyone you've ever <laughs> met wants to support you it's a lot it's <laughs> it's a lot um number seven what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve um, I would like to have, I would like to be able to observe my own feelings better and hopefully avoid unnecessary anxiety. Okay. That's a good one. Uh, number eight, if you could be the commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Like they would have to adhere to it permanently? Yeah. Um, Everyone has to work less. Wow. Okay. Uh, you're hired. <laughs> I, would, I would vote for you. It's something I need to work on. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, maybe right now. I mean, not like right this second. <laughs> like this podcast. Talking to you is terrifying. <laughs> um, yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it would be, I'm, you know, I'm so, I'm so lucky. I haven't had like, you know, near death experiences in my life or anything like that. And, uh, so like, I think this is kind of it. And, you know, my, I'm just worried about my parents and yeah, and like for sure. Yeah. Uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Three words. Um, hmm. Maybe. 
uh, friendly. <laughs> I mean, I honestly hope that I come across as friendly. Um, interesting and uh, kind. I mean, those are not very interesting words, but that's what I feel. Well, that sums it up. I, I, those are fine. Those work for sure. Um, and then finally, who would you recommend that I have on this podcast? Who should I talk to that's interesting? Um, oh, let me think. So many options. Maybe Chris Carlson. Okay. Do you know who that is? I don't. Uh, he is a radical historian in San Francisco and he's just amazing. All right. I will check him out. Thanks so much for doing this. It was really great to talk to you. I, I feel like even just getting in your headspace for 40 minutes is just going to change. Um, it just reminded me of a lot of stuff that I've been thinking about and I haven't given the time to like what it was like to let my mind wander back in the day. I almost never do that now. So I need to get back. It's never too late to get back into it. (laughs) So true. That's what she said. It's time once again for South bitch sessions where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it this week. It is my inability to stop running into things. I don't really have anything else to talk about because I feel like complaining during this time is rude, especially when I'm as lucky as I am to have a job and a wonderful place to live and everything else. But I'm damn sick and tired of whatever combination of anxiety or, I don't know, fatigue, stress is causing me to run into things everywhere. Right now, my hands look like a war zone because I am constantly flinging them into tables, doorways, marble cabinets, tripping on things, hitting my head, I tried to bite a hangnail and ripped off like a chunk of my skin and the resulting hole looks like Alex Smith's leg. There's some sort of flesh eating thing that is now bubbling out of my finger. I'm not sure why this is happening, but maybe I need to slow down. Maybe I need to like uh, put child uh, coverings on all my furniture. Maybe I need to put warning tape on on tabletops. I don't know, guys, but I'm ready for it to be over. One day if I snap, it's probably gonna be about this because it's impossible to type when you have band-aids all over your hands and you're bleeding on everything. And, uh, and it's just, it's honestly, it's annoying. I'm full of bruises. Okay. I feel good about what we accomplished today. I have no one to blame but myself at this point. I'm running out of other people to blame for my problems and I've turned the finger directly at me and I don't know how to fix it. I really don't. I don't feel better about what we accomplished because I'm going to continue running into things until I'm allowed out of this house. All right. There. I didn't really fix it. If you have a problem for me to fix, put it in the comments when you rate, review, and give me all the stars you can muster on the That's What She Said podcast with Sarah Spain on iTunes. Go there. Put your uh, dilemma in the comments, and maybe I'll fix it on a future pod. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. 